Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. We're going to have to try that children's message next week. Uh, technical issues on our end. The video just stopped, so we don't know what happened. Good morning. Glad you're here. Glad you're able to join us and worship this morning. I'm going to encourage you to find John 1, verses 19 through 28. It's our scripture reading, so I'll read it as our scripture reading now, and we'll see what John is saying in this text. There's actually a lot he's saying. We can't say it all this morning, uh, but let's listen in to what we're given by God's word from John 1 this morning. We read, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him, uh, who had been sent, questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you were not the Messiah, not Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy or not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. I was struck this week by the early invention of something that we all encounter and use, but I didn't realize it happened in this year, that is bubble wrap. It was invented in 1957. I never would have expected it to have been invented quite so in that year. I would have expected it much more recently when we do shipping the way we do it. But bubble wrap's been with us since 1957. It was invented by two businessmen who wanted to create, and this is what was so fascinating about it, a wallpaper that was marketed towards the beat generation of the 1950s. They were trying to create a new kind of wallpaper, and they instead accidentally invented bubble wrap when they put two shower curtains together and sent it through some heat, and they got some completely new product. They weren't sure exactly what to do with this product, but they knew it was useful. They could figure that out when they came up with it. And so they came up with a list of about 300 things that they could do with it after they patented it right away. And uh, one of the things that was interesting, they tried it as insulation for greenhouses, which didn't work. Finally, there, there was a match that was made when they found out that IBM was sending their what's called the Model T of computers in 1961, was starting to ship that out and they needed some packaging that would protect their computers in shipment. And so uh, an entirely new industry was born in bubble wrap that we now know and as a multi-billion dollar industry. What's interesting as you consider that is that what they expected they were doing and their reality did not match up, right? They expected that one thing would happen and the reality was completely different. And they had to realign their expectations to the actual reality of the situation. You, we could use a multitude of different examples to get to that same point. I just found bubble wrap interesting this week, but we encounter this all the time in our lives. 
we encounter this all the time when we, we expected one thing, but the reality was different. I expected the food would taste better. I expected it would cost less. We have these kinds of things that happen daily to us where expectations and reality do not match up, and we have to realign the, our expectations with the reality. There's a, that's what's going on in the text when John is being sort of interviewed by these priests, Levites, and Pharisees is they're trying to figure out what the reality is based on their expectations of the Messiah and what's going to come and what John is saying and doing. And this all fits in our broad theme of what we're talking about, where last week we looked at the words of Jesus, his first words in the book of Mark, where he says, the time is near, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And we talked about this idea of repentance, and that when we get to that decisive moment, when Jesus enters into history, it's what we would call a kairos moment from the Greek word for time. It's a timely moment, a decisive moment, a moment when a decision has to be made that God does those things in our lives too at regular intervals, that he gives us those kairos moments, those moments when we have to make a decision or we have to ignore the reality and just live on in uh, misunderstood expectations. To repent is to turn from one thing and leave something behind to turn to a different reality. And as we discussed it last week, it's important to recognize that we talked about God Having, we having those kairos moments in the way God can work in our lives, that we can have sort of that inner sense that something needs to change when God does that. But there has to be something outside of ourselves, markers outside of ourselves, that tell us whether the change we're being called to is good or bad. That what we're leaving behind is truly something we should leave behind, and what we're going towards is actually something good. It can't just be an internal thermometer going on, but something outside of ourselves that helps orient us and give us a measure of what is good and what is bad. Let's just take an example, if, if we would, for why we would need this. Early in this school year, my eight-year-old son uh, came to me. By the way, he was excited I was going to share this story. My eight-year-old son, uh, I was picking him up from school. I was behind the school, couldn't see the school. I'm behind houses at the catwalk. That's where he wanted to go, so he could go across the entire playground, come through the catwalk, and come out and find me. And there's kids and teachers back there and all that. It took him an excessively long time to get from the school to the car on this particular day. And finally, after almost all the kids have emerged, I'm ready to get out of the car and go search for him. Here he comes out, gives a couple, well, not high fives because he couldn't do that this year, but air fives to the teachers that are still walking back because they're done doing traffic stuff and almost all the kids have gone and he's, you know, jumping around and doing all the things eight-year-olds do, and he finally gets to the car, and he's like, Dad, I got 100. Now, consider to yourself in that situation, what's your next question? 100 of what, right? I need some kind of a measure for if this is good news or bad news at this point. Is it 100 on the test, or did you encounter 100 bees on the way through the playground? I don't know. So, It was 100 pine cones that he had collected on the playground, which is why it took him a long time to get to me at the car and put them in his backpack so he could bring them home. I was very excited about this, of course. It actually turns out it was only 20, and they're decomposing in our backyard right now. But it was a very exciting moment for him. But you have to have something external to measure. Is this good news or bad news? Is this something good I'm turning from or bad I'm turning from? What am I repenting from and towards? 
And so John has called us to repentance, has called the people that, that are coming down to see to repentance because the Messiah is coming. He's telling them that, that what they've been waiting for is on the horizon. And actually, he has people who are interested in that news, who maybe even are interested in change based on that news, but they have to weigh it out if it's good or bad. And so the challenge question I just want to present to you today as we consider this text and who Jesus is and all that we're presented with here is, are you interested in change through Jesus Christ? Is that something you're interested in? See, the priests and the Levites come down to the Jordan River where John is baptizing, and they have data. They have information on what they expect this Messiah to be like, but they have an incomplete conclusion. They have different expectations than the data is actually going to show them. And that's what they're starting to realize at this point. And so the question, as, we, as you ponder, are you interested in change through Jesus, we need to back up a second as we talk about repentance and what we're going to and from and ask the, the more important question today is, what's your source for what is good? And what's your source for Jesus? Because those are pivotal to repenting at all and leaving behind what is bad towards what is good. If we go back to the text and look at John chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, Now this is John, was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Who are you, John? That's what they want to know. Now, let's meet John the Baptist. He'll come up right here on the screen, almost as if I'm talking to him in real time, right here. John the Baptist. This is from about 1480, 1490 in the Netherlands. He looks bored, doesn't he? Really bored in that picture. And it's, it's interesting to look at this because here's an, an artist's rendition. A lot of the pictures of John the Baptist from this era actually look quite bored, which surprised me. If you know anything about the Jordan River, this kind of, but not really at all, looks like the Jordan River. This looks more like Europe. Uh, the Jordan River is much more dry, even though it's got, you know, greenery around the actual river. It's very dry, deserty around it. This doesn't look like it. It doesn't exact, kind of looks like John's clothes, but probably not because he wore camel's hair. And then if you look in the background, you've got this cute little European village in the background. So you have sort of the expectation and the reality don't match up here. Who was John? John was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was born as a priest uh, in and the way that it worked, uh, we can dispense with John at this point, because I, I want, might want to walk over there. Uh, we, the way that it worked with um, a priest is that you were born into the priesthood. That's what the law said throughout the Old Testament. You became a priest by birth, and it was by physical requirement. Those were the two things. So John's born to the, as the son of a priest, so he's a priest. And so who comes down to the river to investigate? Yeah, they're sent by the Pharisees. They're not priests, but they're very powerful and important. But it's priests and Levites who come. These are the buddies in the union, right? These are, these are his, his, his people, colleagues in the same uh, vocation as John, asking, who are you and what are you doing? Because this doesn't look like what we do. We're confused, John. We don't get what you're doing. So then he presents, first of all, I'm not the Messiah. That's at least how the text tells us. He says, I'm not the Messiah. Who was the Messiah? That's God's anointed. Now, that word gets applied throughout Scripture in a number of different ways. Uh, a king can be a Messiah, an anointed one, literally anointed with oil, but to be the king. 
You know, you can have it with prophets. It, can, it gets used and applied in different ways throughout the Old Testament. But the specific person they're looking for is the Messiah who would come in the line of David who would rescue Israel. They're looking for someone like that. That's the expectation. They're trying to find the reality. That's why in the, the book of Matthew at the beginning, what most people skip over, that genealogy of Jesus, you know, tracing the lineage back to David and to Jesse, David's father, uh, that's important because they're looking for the Messiah in that family line. That mattered as they read that. What we should understand, though, is in the history of Israel, you had this king, King David, who was the, the king of the United Kingdom, the 12 tribes pulled together, the man after God's own heart. He had the promise, even for his failings, he had the promise that God would build, uh, would make this Messiah come out of his line. That's the promise and the hope of Israel. But in the intervening centuries between when the Pharisees and the priests and Levites are standing with John the Baptist and the death of King David, in that intervening period, the kingdom of Israel had broken into two, and then those two kingdoms had gone into exile. And if you look at the history of Israel and Judah, those two kingdoms, they come back from Israel exile, but they never come back. There's no feast to mark the end of exile. They still feel like they're in exile, even though they're back in the land. There's, no, there's never been a sort of decisive end to that. And in those intervening centuries, they've had some successes at trying to take back the land for themselves and have a king again rule the land. But by the time of Jesus, there's corruption in the temple, the thing that, that they center their entire life around in Jerusalem. And they're living under the uh, occupation of the Roman Empire. They're not free people. Even though they're free, they're not free. They're tolerated in their own land, but not really free and not ruled by themselves. And so the hope of this Messiah who would come back is that this is someone who most people believed would restore the temple and would free them from any external oppression, essentially end their exile and give them salvation from all of that. That's the hope. Are you that guy? That's what they want to know. Uh, New Testament scholar Gary Burge puts it this way. He says throughout the late Old Testament period, and especially in that in between Testament period, hope in a coming Messiah was widespread. I mean, everybody's looking for this. This would be the Lord's anointed, someone filled with God's power and spirit who would work some saving miracle on behalf of God's people. This wasn't just something that a few curious people were looking for. Everybody was looking for someone like this to come. Are you that guy, John? Is that what you're telling us? No, he says, I'm not that guy. How about Elijah? They say, Elijah, one of the pivotal and important prophets of the Old Testament. Are you Elijah? Come back. Because if we know anything about Elijah, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, Elijah, when he's walking with Elisha, who kind of takes over for him as the next prophet, um, Elijah is swooped up to heaven on a fiery chariot with a couple of horses. He doesn't die. And it's expected that he's going to return in some way preceding the day of the Lord, which people put next to the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, in their mind, in their expectation. And you can see that in Malachi 4. It says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, the day of judgment. He will, return, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And even today, uh, in Jewish homes around the world, when they celebrate the Seder, the Passover meal, 
They have an empty seat for Elijah. It was expected that he would come before the Messiah. Are you that guy? They asked John. He decisively says no. Now, you can read Matthew 11 if you're interested in what Jesus says about this, because Jesus says he fulfills that sort of role of Elijah. Um, and there's some interesting conversation that goes on on what that exactly means. But he says, I'm not Elijah. Then they ask, and this to us modern ears that maybe haven't looked into this deeply, it feels like they're grasping for straws by the third person. Are you the prophet, they say. And it sounds, are you this generic? Are you something else? We don't know the other categories. Are you the prophet? Well, it's a specific person that they're talking about when they mention the prophet. Um, Just in John 1, if you go to verse 45, you don't need to go there. But if you looked there, you'd see Philip and Nathanael, two of Jesus' disciples. Philip goes to Nathanael and he says, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. That's, that's the one they're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It comes out of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. That there would be a prophet who would come kind of in the mold of Moses, but greater that would come. Well, it turns out that's the Messiah it's talking about as you look into that. So basically the first question and the last question, are you the Messiah and are you the prophet, are basically the same question in the end. No, he says, I'm not the prophet. When it comes down to it, we have to ask the question of what's our source about Jesus and who this Messiah is. They actually had good sources, the priests and Levites. But what's our source? What's our source for who Jesus is? I spoke at a junior high camp a number of years ago, and I showed the uh, video of one of the Jesus films where Jesus flips over the tables of the money changers. 150 middle schoolers in the room, many of them from churches, some not, some unchurched. And their jaws were on the floor because they had never thought about the fact that Jesus could do that. I mean, it's right there in the text in multiple Gospels that Jesus did that. But gentle Jesus, meek and mild is kind of the image, whether they knew that couplet or not, is kind of the idea they had in their minds. They'd never thought about the fact that Jesus could do that or did do that. What's your source about who Jesus is? About they're, they're trying to figure out who's this Messiah that's coming. What's your source? Since we know he came, what's your source for the information about Jesus? And a simple read of Scripture begins to enter us into the territory of who Jesus is. We're not going to uncover all those, but what I want to do is, as we're talking about uh, knowing Jesus, I want to challenge you with, with uh, the question of how far do you want to get to know Jesus? by checking your sources and following through with those sources. You see, some people don't know Jesus at all because they don't read Scripture. That's the primary source where we get information about who Jesus is. They don't read it. So I can have a conversation with someone within the last couple years, um, not a part of our congregation, um, that somebody I just ran into along the way who were talking about the Lord's Supper and Communion. And this person visits different churches but isn't a believer and wants to know why the Lord's table is not open to everybody but only open to people who believe and follow Jesus Christ. And so it's a good conversation to have. But as I'm talking to this person, I I sort of said, well, let's, let's step back and let's look at the original situation and then walk forward from there. 
So there was an actual historical event called the Last Supper. Let's step back to that first and talk about that and what was going on there. Who do you think was at the table at the actual Last Supper? And this person looked at me and said, oh, everybody, everybody from every religion and basically every shade of color of person. And my simple question was, how did you come to that conclusion? What's your source of information for that conclusion? Because I said, I can, look at the, I can look at the primary source, the Gospels, and I can see it was at least 13 Jewish men that were sitting there. And probably some others that were around the periphery. But it certainly wasn't every religion. Like there was an actual historical event. We have it documented of what actually happened. And then we can go from there. What's your source of information? Because all too often, sometimes if we haven't read any scripture at all, and I don't say this to make anybody feel bad for not reading scripture, I'm just pointing out that the obvious. We get ideas about Jesus, but we get ideas about Jesus from everywhere else except the source that tells us about who Jesus really was. We get all kinds of interesting, odd, and strange ideas about Jesus, and they're not accurate. They're inaccurate. And even if you go to the text of Scripture and you read about who Jesus was, it's okay to look at other things that talk about Jesus and compare those and contrast and say, what is the original sort of historical source we have, say, compared to those things? A basis of comparison. We have to start there. Some people don't know Jesus because they just haven't read Scripture. We need to start there. Some people don't know Jesus very well because they only read small portions of Scripture. And as I I mentioned, there's three different categories. As I mentioned these, just consider where you fall in these and and what the remedy is, because that's my challenge for you at this point. Some people don't know Jesus very well because they only read small portions of Scripture. And really, when you look at sort of the Christian world, this happens on the two polar ends of Christianity most. A little more, I'd suggest, on one end than the other, but it happens on the two polar ends the most where people read small portions of Scripture, the familiar, the ones they like, um, and then they tend to read books about Scripture if they're going to do it, or books about books about Scripture and not the original text in its fullness. And we're not going to get to know Jesus very well if that's all we do not challenged and confronted with the whole witness of scripture and all that it tells us about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. The priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, they thought they had the whole picture. In many ways they knew a lot of it, but they tended to focus on certain portions of it a little too tightly and understand those in a little too tight of a sense, so they missed what was going on or weren't able to put the pieces together because they They weren't actually using the full witness of Scripture. So some people don't know Jesus very well because they're not reading the full witness of Scripture. And some people don't know Jesus fully because they never get the perspective of other believers reading Scripture together. That's challenged right now, but it's not impossible in COVID. Let's not believe that it's impossible with our direct, uh, directed health measures and all that. We can still read scripture with peop- other people. You can do it virtually. You can even do it. It's okay to bring in other books about scripture by people who are experts in that or have knowledge in that. We need to do both. And sometimes we'll have to lean on one or the other depending on the time. But the question is, uh, do you read scripture at all? Do you need to read more scripture or do you need to read scripture with others more than you do? If we're going to know Jesus 
fully and know what to expect. You see, to their credit, the Pharisees, the Levites, and the priests were really interested. They walked down the river, and and even though the Pharisees sent priests and Levites on their behalf, you can see in the text, some of them went too. They were interested enough to go. To their credit, they were interested, and they were pretty well researched, even if they didn't have the full conclusion down yet. Do you have such interest in knowing Jesus that well? That's the question, that's the challenge that comes with these. Jesus calls us to repent and believe, to leave behind the misinformation, the things that aren't Jesus, the things that aren't godly, and walk towards that which is, towards Jesus himself. Now, last week we saw this repent and believe learning circle that popped up on your screen, and it's popped up on your screen again. And we talked about the fact that this top line here is what we kind of think of when we think of salvation, that we just kind of walk along in a a plodding line as if nothing else will happen in life, but we have these kairos moments, these moments when God breaks in and continues to challenge us. Now, first and foremost, for some of us, the first moment is salvation. We have to have that first and foremost where we say yes to Jesus Christ. We realize that we're going in an ungodly direction in life, even if it sometimes looks semi-godly, but we we don't have Jesus and we're not following Jesus. He hasn't done his work of redemption that hasn't started yet. But even when we're following that path of Jesus Christ, we can have these kairos moments where God breaks in and says something's got to change because you're not actually doing what you're supposed to do if you're going to look like my son Jesus Christ. You're not actually allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you as you walk along that in this area of life. That's why these kairos moments come. How would we know if something's right or wrong? Well, we have to go back to the source and recognize what Jesus has called us to, who he's called us to be. And in that, we saw that you need to observe what's going on in life, to, to reflect. But you also need to go to that last thing to discuss. That's why you need other believers, to discuss what it is that you're being called to change. But I would suggest, and this is why the directed health measures won't stop you on this, the first person we need to discuss repentance with is God. Why would we need to do that first and foremost? Well, Consider this. This is an old renter's trick that people have used for a long time, but I read about it on BobBila.com this week, and it's actually legit because I've never used the trick myself. You can use toothpaste to patch holes in your walls. If you have tiny little nail holes in your walls, apparently uh, renters have been doing this for a long time. I thought it was just a cheap trick, but if it's smaller than a quarter of an inch, it will fix the hole in your wall as long as it's not the gel, you got to use the real white paste. And you can paint it, and it works. It's as good as any spackle or wall putty you can put in there for that. But you can't use it for the big holes. You could try, it's just not going to work. And when it comes down to it, the first person we need to discuss repentance with is God, who would call us on that, in that kairos moment anyways. Why? Because we actually can probably fix some small little holes in our life to some degree. But repentance that just gives you minor life improvements is not actually repentance, and it will fail. It's got to be total life commitment to Jesus Christ and total turn. Repent and believe. We can't just patch up these little holes ourselves and expect that we're going to become like Jesus. No, Jesus has to get involved in the work. So we're called to repent. We're called to believe. We're called first and foremost to give up low expectations of what God will do. 
and discover the real Jesus and what he actually says he'll do. So we've got to know our sources. We've got to go to those sources. We've got to go to Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and learn who the real Jesus is and what he's calling us to and what his kingdom really is. We've got to repent. We've got to turn and give up trying to fix our own life like toothpaste in the wall and recognize that only God can actually fix this. It's something outside of ourself that needs to work on us, even though that Kairos moment feels like an internal moment. John's baptism, remarkably, was offensive to the Pharisees, to the priests, and the Levites. Why? Because typically a baptism like what John was doing was reserved for people who were outside of the Jewish faith coming in. They'd be baptized because they were dirty on the outside to be cleaned, to be brought in as one of the many steps to come into the faith. And John is saying that same process for all you insiders who know the law, who study the law, who have devoted your life to fulfilling all that the law says are dirty and need to be made clean for what God is about to do that was offensive. And yet God calls us at so many times in so many ways to repent and believe. Perhaps today the first moment is of salvation in Jesus Christ. But for many of us, even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, pride can get in the way of us thinking that we have it figured out when God's reality doesn't always match up with our expectations. We've got to go back to the source to repent and believe and recognize that God is constantly working on us to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's going to be hard. But he calls us to repent and believe. So this morning, turn to God's son, Jesus. Turn to his redemption. Turn to God's counsel, to God's people. Check your sources. Check your heart. Check your direction. Repent and believe. Let's pray together. Lord, if there are those listening right now who don't know your son, Jesus Christ, and have experienced a Kairos moment right now where they need to repent and believe, I invite any of them to join me and say yes to Jesus. Yes, Lord, I turn away from anything ungodly to the things that offend you. And Lord, I turn towards your son, Jesus Christ, that his blood would wash me clean like the baptism of John, only more. That I would repent and turn and be made new. Lord, help us understand what life abundant looks like through your son, Jesus Christ, and experience it today. Help us repent and believe. Help us understand the source of your son, Jesus Christ, where we understand and learn about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's called us to and invited us into, what he's commanded us to be, and what his work and his redemption will turn us into over time. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in us in powerful ways at home, around this week, as we go to work and school. Lord, we pray for your full life to be experienced in our lives and that we would be a witness to that, to those we encounter. In your name we pray. Amen.